Hello, everyone, and welcome back to MetaStation. I'm Erin. I'm an English professor in Mississippi. I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. And uh, today we are talking about episode 313, Join or Die. Woo! The titles just keep getting more and more melodramatic. So we kick off with the Adventure Squad road trip, which was... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Very exciting. I do love how Clark has permanent shotgun when Bellamy is driving. That just oh, it just feels yeah. right to me. It's, like I imagine when they're all kind of together and about to get into the car, you know, some of those things that's like never questioned. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, if they like picked up another person, like kind of went for the front seat, everyone would look at them like, uh, excuse you. <laughs> She's never had to call shotgun. She just has yeah. shotgun just all the time. Exactly. Like eternal shotgun yeah. is like that's the relationship level. Exactly. Yeah. It just feels so right to me. I'm like, I'm on board with this. I don't know where to start other than just sort of incoherent flailing about like like, like how unbelievably amazingly Belark this episode was. (laughs) How do I articulate my feelings in a way that isn't just about feelings? Um, (laughs) So, okay. One thing that that really, really made me super happy about the way that this part of the story went with Bellamy and Clark, and not just as a shipper, but then also just as like someone who likes it when like themes come together and cohere and progress in a logical and satisfying fashion as they have been doing in the second half of the season. So like one thing that I really, really liked about this storyline this week was I feel like what we got from Bellamy and Clark's conversation and from their interactions You know, in addition to kind of like reconciliation to those two characters, we also really got, uh, I think they're sort of being set up as their relationship being exemplary of where the show is going. So like, not only, you know, are we seeing Bellamy and Clark coming back together as sort of like partners, as friends, as like so clearly the heart and soul of the show when they're together and clicking, everything is clicking. But I think one reason for that is that this is an episode that on so many levels like last week, is really all about atonement and forgiveness and reckoning with the past and the things that you've done and the mistakes that you've made and figuring out how to deal with that and move forward. And so I think once again, you know, as we've seen a few episodes in a row now, we get like a couple of versions of ways to deal with that. And I think this is the episode where it seemed to me like really definitive that Clark and Bellamy and the way that they deal with that, that is the way that we are going. That's the direction that the show is heading. They're sort of like exemplary in terms of the way that they deal with each other is sort of the way that we're supposed to be thinking about this moving forward. So I think maybe we could start with actually Bellamy and Octavia because that's the thing that sets yeah, up Clark yeah. and Bellamy. You know, and it was like kind of interesting because we've been talking about this the last few podcasts where we feel like the transition from Octavia being the kind of like moral vox populi to not being that has been a little bit rocky occasionally or not entirely clear. Yeah. I don't think they anticipated Bellamy being as damaged by 3A as he was as a character. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where like you're telling a story and there's aspects of it that got left on the cutting room floor and in your head those blanks are filled and so you can't necessarily step back and realize that those are blanks that the audience isn't going to fill in. I think the editing in 3A 
hurt a lot of things, but Bellamy in particular, because I suspect that the version of Bellamy and Bellamy's relationship with Octavia and the kind of moral ambiguity and all those questions about perspective that we should have had the whole time, and Pike too, which we'll get to in a second, the nuance Mm -hmm. that's arriving now would have made everything much easier if I had come in 304. Yes, exactly, exactly. So now, and we talked about this a couple episodes ago, if you stick Lincoln back into 3A, so much makes more sense. Oh These, my like, God. threads come together. You know, I think our hunch is right that Lincoln was supposed to be a much bigger part of Bellamy's arc in 3A than he was. Like the transition that Bellamy made to siding with Pike and the reasons for it and the sort of schism between him and Grounders and his kind of like move towards more absolute lines. I think so much of that was wrapped up in his relationship with Lincoln or it was supposed to have been depicted in his relationship with Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And since we didn't see that, we missed a ton of, you know, what was going on with Bellamy. But now also I think like you can see the payoff of that happening in these episodes where so much of Bellamy's movement towards recognizing the root of the mistakes that he's made, not just that what he did was bad, but like why he did what he did, you know, why what he thought was wrong and then atoning for it. So much of that is wrapped up in Lincoln and it still is like in this episode. And I think because they cut so much of Lincoln, the only thing that stays is that it's about Octavia, which is not true and it's never been true. And that's why it rang false a couple episodes where she accused him of that. And I don't think that was ever supposed to be the case. You know, and I think this episode is the first time we very, very clearly see sort of narratively we're kind of shown that, that like Octavia's perspective is definitely not the correct one. Yeah. But I think like this is another one of those instances. If you go back and sort of mentally reinsert Lincoln into Bellamy's story in yeah. 3A. And you think about Bellamy's arc and his relationship to Grounders being framed through the sort of transformation of his relationship to Lincoln. Mm -hmm. Then the way that his atonement plays out through like Lincoln's funeral and then through his consideration of how much and what degree he is responsible for Lincoln makes a lot more sense. Not that it didn't make sense. I don't mean to say that I thought that like Bellamy's stuff in this episode didn't work. I thought it totally worked. Like everything about, you know, Bellamy and Bellark and Bellamy and Octavia in this episode was awesome. I just like, it would have been even more satisfying and the parallels would have been clearer. If it had been grounded in something that we had seen. Exactly. But I was really, really happy. You know, like I thought it was really well done this episode where we see, you know, like we get to the rover. And like those, just those little tiny moments, you know, Clark's looking at the flames. So we kind of get these little moments where we still see that she's, you know, she still loves Lexa. She's still kind of obsessed with this idea that Lexa's in the flame, which I think is going to come back, you know, towards the end when she's in there. And we get Octavia, who's still so overly intense, you know, like who's Mm -hmm. still just like so keyed up, like we've got to keep going, got to keep going. You kind of like get the sense that like the only thing that's keeping her upright and moving right now is this idea that they're on this mission. So I was like super happy when we got to that campfire scene and it was so awesome that she was the one who listened to Pike and she made the fire. I Um, love that. Oh my gosh. That was like just very, very satisfying. Although I did (laughs) like watching that scene, she puts a little like smoking pile of shavings underneath the wood and it all catches. And I was like, that wood is soaked. There is no way. They'd be like blowing on that shit. Oh my God. 
with like smoke going everywhere for fucking hours. Seriously, <laughs> the last time I was on a beach bonfire trying to make a fire with wet beech wood, my clothes smelled like smoke through like four loads of laundry. I was like, exactly. I'm like, I'm from Oregon. I call bullshit on your rain fire. None of you know how fire works. Okay, yeah. <laughs> those must have been soaked with lighter fluid. That's the yeah. only explanation. Yeah. But whatever. Fine. But that aside, yeah. That aside. So, like, I thought it was so, so important. I was very happy with how delicately they handled this. You know, because, like, Octavia's been kind of like a bull in a china shop with this. Yeah. And the narrative has a little bit, too, in how unclear it's been in terms of, like, signaling us as an audience about when the transition to not be on her side was anymore. Yeah. And I think it was, like, it was messy because, like, I don't think that that transition had really happened when she was beating up Bellamy, which is when it should have happened. Right. Then it happens later. So, like, it's all kind of a mess. But this is the first time that... We really got a very, very clear, like, Bellamy's trying to talk to her. And I felt like very, you know, it's like nicely nuanced, you know? Yeah. So he, and like heartbreaking, you know, and he says like, how long Octavian? And she admits, she finally admits what it's really about. You know, she finally admits that the problem is that it's emotional, you know, that it's, that it's traumatic, that when she thinks about Bellamy, he's all tied up in her head with Lincoln dying. And so in some horrible, like heartbreaking way, Bellamy himself has become this trigger for her, for her grief for Lincoln, you know, so she just can't, the pain is so intense and wrapped up together for Octavia. She doesn't know how to to cope with it or separate those things in her mind. Yeah. And I think it's like, we can talk about Pike's, the key to survival is to keep fighting because I think that's a really interesting line. And I think it's one of those, it's like, it's true, but then it's also really corrupted, you know, because it's Pike. But also even with Octavia, you know, where like she's trying to survive by fighting and she keeps fighting, fighting, fighting. And I think there's a sort of line where it's becoming counterproductive. So I liked that we got Octavia to actually talk about what is driving her. She said, when I look at you, I see this. Yeah, she called it by name for the first time. Exactly, exactly. And I loved that Bellamy got to say... I didn't kill Lincoln. That was so important. I understand why he didn't push her on that before now. There wasn't a way for him to say that and have it get through. And he's been trying as hard as he can, I think, to be respectful of her feelings. He does the funeral thing last time. He's been trying to atone. He's been trying to reach her. But I did feel like the fact that he finally, like, gently, but also firmly, finally kind of stood up for himself and was sort of like, If we're going to talk about this, we have to talk about what it actually is. We have to call it by name and then deal with it. I think his refusal any longer to be burdened by Octavia and also, I think, implicitly by the audience as though he's a person who actually pulled the trigger, you know, because then it makes it about like it's Octavia's grief. It's everything all being kind of tangled up in her head. And those are real things that need to be dealt with. I was so glad that somebody said, and then that it's affirmed by Clark later that the narrative is stating explicitly that he's not uninvolved with it, but we all need to stop behaving like Bellamy's the person who murdered Lincoln. I like your phrase calling it by name, because I think that's one thing that happens a lot in this episode is that people are finally calling things by their, you know, like things that they've been avoiding they're finally looking at them and calling them by their name. And I think that's really maybe a thread. They draw a very nice, finally, like a nice distinction between what exactly it is that Bellamy is responsible for in this and mm. what he's not. Yeah. And he is responsible for Octavia's pain indirectly. He didn't kill Lincoln, but he was complicit in Lincoln's death. Right. Because he was involved and helped 
create the circumstances that led to Lincoln's death. So he right. is complicit, you know, right. and it is just as important that when Clark says you have blood on your hands, but not Lincoln's, Bellamy says some of it is like, it's so important that yeah. Bellamy said some of it is Lincoln. And like two things are happening there. Number one, he's saying, yes, I have blood on my hands from everything that I've done. And two, he's saying, yes, some of it is Lincoln. And Clark is saying, okay, yes, and also. Like, she's not saying, no, it's okay. She's, she's also like, calling it by name. Exactly. And yeah. so I think it's really important because, like, the distinction that we're getting is, like, what exactly are you responsible for? Right. Who have you hurt and how? You know, because, like, in order to be able to atone for something, you have to know what the thing you're atoning for is. You know, you have to be able to look at it and name it. Right. And so for the show to finally have drawn that line and say, like, Bellamy has to do some atoning for Lincoln, but not really to Octavia. And Octavia's problem isn't really that Bellamy was responsible for Lincoln's death. It's that she's in so much pain. Right. And I think, like, the way that pain warps or changes the way that you understand what's happening and people's motives and the way that it shapes people's behaviors and reactions. I think that's a really important part of this episode too, just across the board, like physical pain and emotional pain. Yeah. Because you have so many people who are sort of acting out of pain in various ways. And so it's important that, that we're starting to get some of these fine distinctions. And like, I mean, I was very, very happy because I love Bellamy so much and it's been such a clusterfuck for him. I'm glad that we finally got an episode that's like very careful about like positioning him in terms of like what he's morally responsible for and what he's not. And I'm glad that they're shifting some of the responsibility back towards Octavia in terms of her being responsible for... For her own uh, reactions to things. For her own, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like narratively they're saying like some of this is on you. Some of this is right. your feelings. But I thought it was like done very compassionately. You know, like yeah. Just, oh like, yeah. The back, it's like, well, how dare you, Octavia? And I know there are some people who are still very upset about the fact that she beat him and the fact that she's probably never gonna say sorry, and that is really frustrating because I don't think the show really understands how messed up that is. But still, if we're moving into a situation where like all of these characters have suffered terribly and lost so much and they're in so much pain, then I kind of feeling like we're getting to the point where recrimination is counterproductive and it's kind of the problem. Like what we need yeah. is empathy and compassion. Yeah. And so I think it's important that like that was done in a way where like we as an audience feel compassion for Octavia, you know, like she's acting out. Oh yeah. She's acting recklessly and cruelly to her brother. She's lashing out. But, like, it's coming from this place of horrible, horrible pain that she doesn't know what else to do with. All she knows is how to fight, you know? Like, that's all that Octavia knows how to do. So I, I thought that was really, really well done. I thought so, too. And I think we can sort of circle back to this a little bit because there's some really interesting parallels, I think, between the movement that we see towards some degree of reconciliation between Bellamy and Octavia coming from Bellamy's sort of honest realization of the specific things that he needs to atone for and how that yeah. compares to the scene between Pike and Indra. What I liked about this episode, one of the many things I liked about it was that you and I have talked a lot in the last couple of podcasts about feeling a little bit like the excessive sort of game of thronesiness of this season means that we've had a lot of like big mass death spectacle that has lacked in some cases 
the kind of urgent human stakes that made those mass deaths in the first two seasons so harrowing. And what I liked about this Mm -hmm. was that we're back to the emotional, personal stakes of the Grounder Massacre, both for Bellamy, for Pike, for Indra, the weight of the cost of those things and the moral responsibility of the two people arguably most responsible for executing that, really having to face that in two very different ways and from two very different people. But it felt like this really is the show that we started watching again, because when those things happen, the stakes are real, they're concrete, and people bear the weight of those things for the rest of their lives. You mm-hmm. know, And it felt like because we were a little bit emotionally distant from the massacre when the massacre happened. And with the Mount Weather bombing, like we didn't get as up close and personal with it as we have with other times that these, you know, situations have been explored on this show. And I feel like now that we're kind of in the home stretch, I was really glad to see that we continue to be sort of diving deeper and deeper and deeper into the weight of this on Bellamy in a way that feels really earned. And then also beginning to finally see in some ways that make some really nice parallels, you know, the chickens coming home to roost for Pike. Yeah, I agree. And I think maybe this is a good place to go back to Clark and Bellamy because I, I really yeah. do think it was just such a beautifully done scene across the board. And I really do think that the way that that reckoning went down between the two of them is so important because that is the ideal. Yes, like this, I agree. The, what, yeah. the, what we're seeing with them is the ideal of the way that we're moving towards in terms of dealing with the, all the horrible things that have happened in the past. Mm-hmm. The whole thing was just so, so great. And I loved all the parallels to previous Valark scenes. Oh my you know, God. Like, it was like a greatest hits album. It was amazing. It, it really was. It was like every <laughs> single possible line. I was so you know, happy. Yeah. Had. Yeah. There was like a gift set that had like the scene from 108 at the tree after, yeah. you know, the, oh, the um, forgiveness. Yeah. The forgiveness wing where like that showed that like shot for shot, you know, like Clark sort of sitting down next to Bellamy and mm-hmm. looking at him and looking away and then like, asking if he's okay and him saying no. I mean, that's like basically like perfectly parallel. Yeah. And this kind of like closed the circle on this parallels that they've been sort of like echoing for these two. You know, I thought it was like so great that she comes over to check on him. You know, she's like concerned and his immediate first reaction is a callback to their conversation in 305 where he sort of reacts defensively, right? And he calls her Juan Hedda. Yeah. Sarcastically. The great Hawan Hedda coming to, like, solve everyone's problems. I don't need your help. I love that she just sort of stands there and, like, silently, like, okay, mm-hmm. well, I'll just wait. Yeah. And then I thought it was, like, it was such a big moment to me that, like, there's a pause. And when he starts to talk again, he calls her Clark. Juan Hedda was trying to push her away. And mm-hmm. after he realizes that he can't, that she's not going to leave. This is, like, the beautiful pattern of that scene, right? Like, he lashes out. He does something mean to her like she didn't deserve that and the way that she reacts is not defensively but empathetically and she recognizes in that moment what he's trying to do emotionally and she's sort of like okay i'm gonna let that go and i'm gonna stand here and wait for you you know what i like about that moment i like anytime this show gives us a reminder the fact that bellamy and octavia are siblings means that they're alike in some ways they're not always aware of and that they they both default to anger first And they see that in each other and they call it out in each other. Siblings have these kind of patterns of behaviors, you know, that sometimes go unexamined. He and Octavia can't give each other comfort when one of them is angry because one of them is angry and pushes and then the other one pushes back. And Clark is not a Blake. Clark is a Griffin. They have a whole different way of doing things. So I liked that 
he kind of did to her a similar version of the way that, you know, Octavia has been treating him, which mm-hmm. is like, I'm hurt and I'm upset and I'm going to just snap at you and build and this wall between us. And the thing that hurts me that's going to hurt you. Yeah. You know, I'm yeah. just going to like... I'm going to pull that out and try to defend myself with it. Yeah, I'm going to push that button as hard as I can. And then you're going to go away. And then I'm going to feel sort of angry and vindicated. And also sort of wrap myself in the blanket of my righteous fury at the world that I'm funneling towards you. And the clerk is like, okay, I'll be here when you're done. I like these little moments where it's like the fact that they're siblings isn't just about the fact that they love each other and are protective, but that they are the same. And they have similar patterns in a lot of ways that I think... This show does a good job of letting those be pretty deftly underplayed and subtle. But this is one of those moments where I thought, like, Blake's going to Blake. Like, yeah, exactly, exactly. And the fact that she, because she knows him so well and she can read him so well, she stays where she is and just stands there because she knows that he actually does have something he needs to say. She recognizes it as pain yeah. rather than anger or malevolence or something like that. Yeah, and she doesn't take it personally. And I think that's so powerful because if you think about, you know, like someone who is lashing out in pain like that, it's protective, but like the thing that they want most is for someone to prove that they're not going to abandon them, you know, because yeah. that's the thing they're afraid of yeah. being left. And so like the lashing out just kind of proves that like in that messed up way where you're like, I'm going to prove that the horrible thing that I believe is true for someone to stand there and be like, I recognize your pain and I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to reject you for being the monster that you think that you are. You know what I mean? Yeah. And this is like a little tiny microcosm of that. But like, I think that like, that was just like such a beautiful little choice. And I think actually like the, the powerful stuff in the conversation with Bellamy and Clark and what makes it, what makes this one so transformative for these two characters, and I think also for the show, is the stuff that doesn't get said and that gets retransformed from previous conversations. So we've gotten lots and lots of, you know, we've had parallel scenes where Clark offers Bellany forgiveness and then he offers her forgiveness, right? Yeah. And the, the powerful thing about this time was that she didn't offer him forgiveness. She offered him the possibility of self-forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't hers to give. And I think they both finally recognize, like, no one else can absolve you for your crimes. You know, no one else can absolve you for your guilt. Your guilt is yours. You have to carry it. And forgiveness like that, like someone saying, you want forgiveness? Okay, you're forgiven. That doesn't actually take away or or fix what you did wrong. Unless it's from the person that you wronged, they can't remove that guilt from you. Exactly. So what's required now is not really forgiveness. It's more like acceptance of you as you currently are and faith in you that you will atone, you know? So like, I think what was so important, what was so powerful, you know, that we got Bellamy finally opening up to her about his fear of losing Octavia and Clark reminding him to give it time, you know, that that these, that healing just takes time. You have to kind of let it go. But then also we finally have them sort of like airing out, not just like I did this, but like I did this and it haunts me. You know, and I think like that, that emotional vulnerability is, was so important for her to say, like, maybe you have blood on your hands, but it not, it, it's not Lincoln's. And for him to say some of it is like, that's him admitting that I have blood on my hands Yeah, and I am bearing that guilt, you know, and I'm suffering from it. And for Clark to say, can you forgive yourself? I mean, like, that's the real question because like, you can't, you can't force forgiveness from anyone else. You know, you have to sort of like work through it yourself, but for her to admit to him, that she also is struggling to forgive herself. That this time it's not one of them saying, okay, you're forgiven. 
It's them reciprocally saying to each other, I need forgiveness too. And I don't know if, if I'm going to get it. Forgiveness is hard for us. You know, that Bellamy says like that, that admitting there that forgiveness isn't just a matter of saying, okay, you're forgiven. Right. That it's like hard and it's a process and it's painful. And the fear is that you will never be forgiven. And that means that you will never be accepted and you'll just be rejected and burdened with that forever. So for them to have solidarity in that pain, for them, for her to say together, you know, we're, we need each other. We're in this together. There's so many, so many things in that together. And one of them is... You won't be alone going through this painful process of trying to find forgiveness. Like there is someone with you who understands what you're going through, who already implicitly, you know, trusts and accepts you, who doesn't have to forgive you to stay with you. You know, like I think that's what's really powerful about that together. The part that I really loved in that moment, because we all know that my aesthetic is Kane Bellamy parallels. I loved that Clark basically gives him the Vera Kane line. The ways in which that scene is a beautiful little mirroring of Kane and his mother after the calling, and he's totally wrecked by the thing that he's done. And he's sort of in the same position where it's like, I was so sure that I was right and then this thing happened and it was awful and there's all this blood on my hands and I don't know what to do. The way Bellamy feels the weight of his actions and guilt through Octavia and the way that Cain felt it by that room full of people who sort of came to call him out on the deaths of their loved ones being for nothing, you know, and that nobody but his mom could sort of say like, you did that thing. That thing did happen. That is real. And the cost of that is real. For them, I think there's obviously there's sort of a more overtly spiritual aspect because of who the Canes are, which is different. But that Vera's point is it isn't an exterior thing. It's an interior thing. It is like the only thing that matters here is can you forgive yourself for the thing that you did? And the way that she sort of enters into that sort of grief-stricken and guilt-stricken place that he's at without any judgment. I like so much the show setting up, I mean, using the exact same words practically, putting Clark in that role for Bellamy. Like that Clark is the person who doesn't need him to explain anything, doesn't need him to justify himself because their relationship has always been about seeing each other in this really honest way that doesn't sort of shy away from those things, but also they're not hypocritical and judging each other for things where it's like, I've done that too. There continue to be some really beautiful parallels in both Bellamy and Kane's redemption arcs, like season one and two Kane paralleling a lot of sort of where Bellamy is at right now. Anytime somebody says a line verbatim that a different character in another situation has said, I think we're meant to take that as sort of a thesis statement. So things like there has to be another way or the reiteration of there are no good guys. When they hammer those things into us by giving them to us again verbatim in parallel situations, it's like this is the show sort of breaking the fourth wall and saying, remember these words, remember this message. We're telling you an important thing about what the show is saying. You know, the conversation that we had last week about atonement and how that sort of all plays in, I feel like getting that line again in this particular circumstance says to me that the question of can you forgive yourself for the things that you've done, not because you need some exterior validation that, you know, it's okay, you didn't really do that thing, you didn't mean to, it wasn't that bad, like not in a false shallow way, but in a way where it's like, 
you can't live in the world and be among people if you are not able to, in some way, move through the things that you've done. They really happen. Yeah, yeah. Like everyone is still bearing the cost of that weight on their soul. But we see, you know, with people like Kane, that you find a way to move through that and transform it and become a better person, you know, and you can't yeah. do that while you're still hating yourself for it. Yeah. And I think it's important to, I mean, like, Clark does say to Bellamy, you didn't mean for that to happen. You tried to stop it. She sort of reminds us as an audience, finally, of the fact that, like, Bellamy was involved in this massacre, but it wasn't just him. He didn't kill 300 people by himself, and he tried yeah. to mitigate it. So, like, I think in that way that they're sort of, like, walking us back to the middle, the way that they did with Octavia, kind of, like, drawing the lines in a more nuanced way. Yeah. I think that was part of it. But I, I also thought it was really important that the other part of it was that you know, Clark said that, but Bellamy didn't really let himself off the hook. You know, he was admitting here that blood is on my hand. I think it's important that, like, this is really the point we're getting where we see, like, Bellamy is, is facing exactly what he is responsible for and exactly what the blood is on his hand. Right. And we got that little moment at the beginning of the episode, too, where, like, they're all running up the hill to the ocean. Yeah. And he's like, slow down. They might be hostile. And Octavia's like, put away the gun. And he kind of thinks for a second, and then he does it. This is Bellamy realizing he's still got that knee jerk, you know, like, they must be dangerous. But he's starting to recognize that that was the source of his mistake. These are the points where we're seeing, like, this is real atonement for Bellamy, where he's looking at what he did, and he's facing it. But the other part about, like, Kane's calling thing, and then Bellamy and Clark here, is that, like... The word we're not saying, the other big thing about these scenes, is that what's really behind it is that what Clark is saying to Bellamy without saying it, and what Vera was saying to Marcus without saying it, is that you did this thing, and it was wrong, and it was bad, but I still love you. Exactly. Like, that's the real underlying yeah. thing. Just yeah. because you did something bad. Just because you can't forgive yourself right now and maybe the people you hurt will never forgive you, that doesn't mean I don't love you. And I think like that's the like underlying message, which is what makes this like as a Balearic thing is like makes it so huge, you know, like this <laughs> yeah. is because like because this is about how much they love each other and will and are sort of like affirming that they will always love each other, whether it's romantic or platonic at this point. And I think at this for Bellamy, it's like pretty much canonically romantic yeah. and Clark probably isn't there yet. But like, but that's the sort of underlying thing. Like that together is like, we have this core of love that cannot be broken or dissipated right. by what you've done. And it doesn't mean that we gloss over what we've done. And it doesn't mean that I say, no, no, it's okay. You didn't hurt me when you did. So that's the other half of it. So like for Bellamy, we see Bellamy admitting to the blood on his hands, sort of admitting to the pain that he's caused and Clark saying, you have to learn to forgive yourself, even though that's hard. And on Bellamy's side, the other like humongously important thing is that he finally says to her that he was angry when she left. You know, I loved that moment. Said, that was such a humongously important moment for them and for the show too, for him to say, I was angry at you for leaving, but I don't want to feel that way anymore. Because I, and what I absolutely love about that moment is that it frames... The way that he processes the pain that she caused him as a choice that he can make. Yeah. So he is not a victim, you know, like, and if we're talking about the Blakes, the way that the Blakes deal with feeling hurt is that they lash out, yeah. that they hang on to that pain and they store it up and they like condense it down into a hard little burning ball of hate, yeah. which is kind of what Bellamy <laughs> did at the beginning of the season. Yeah. Uh, that led to all this stuff. And that's what Octavia is doing to Bellamy. 
what's the alternative to that? The alternative to that is to look at your pain and to decide to forgive, to decide, I don't want to hang on to this. Yeah. You know, my pain is not more important than you are, is basically what he's saying. Yeah. And so like, I thought that was like such a beautiful moment. What's being framed for us with Bellamy and Clark is that like, love can persist despite misdeeds and that you know, forgiveness and acceptance is a choice. How you deal with your pain and, and whether you can heal your relationships with other people who have hurt you is a choice. And you can choose to let it go. And you can choose to forgive them, you know, and it doesn't mean papering it over. Right, it doesn't right. mean saying, no, 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 no. It means saying to that person, looking in the eye and saying, you hurt me. This caused me pain. That's not okay. But I'm not going to like reject you and end this relationship for it. In terms of like show thesis statements, I think that's maybe one of them. And it was like so humongously important for Clark to hear that, you know, because like if her entire 3A thing was subtextually about her running away from facing the pain that she had caused and sort of avoiding facing the fact that she had abandoned him and her people, the fact that he said that to her, that she was now facing that, you know, she faced it last week, a little bit with Emerson, that was her kind of like facing Mount Weather, and the confrontation with Jasper the week before. And so now finally, Bellamy, this is like the culmination. So now she's had to look all the people in the face that she hurt by doing this. And I thought it was so powerful that she said to him, you're not the only one trying to forgive yourself, which is like, just such a beautiful way to say, I know I hurt you. Yeah, and I cannot forgive myself, and it and it eats me up inside that I hurt you without saying it. Like she's saying to him, "I know, I acknowledge, I acknowledge that I hurt you, and I acknowledge that what I, the decision that I made." She's not saying it's wrong, you know. Like she's saying, "Like I know I caused pain, and I'm struggling with that too." Well, and the interesting thing too, I think, is the sort of unpacking of the layers of the various different things that Clark has been running from and needs to forgive herself for because there's a couple of different things going on. There's her not walking back through the gates of Arcadia because she was running away from and couldn't forgive herself for the Death Set Mount weather, which caused the incredible hurt to Bellamy by the act of her leaving, which is the second thing she's been hiding from and a second process of something to forgive herself for that she... I think didn't quite realize the magnitude of until she sees him again in 305. The scope of the different things that she's hiding from in Polis where she doesn't have to look at any of these people, it's so much more than just about what happened at Mount Weather. It's interesting to me just the way that she has the reckoning about Mount Weather first, you know, that that's what Emerson was, Mm -hmm. and then last, and therefore clearly I think narratively we're meant to believe of even greater emotional significance is the reconciliation with Bellamy for the thing that she did in hiding from the other thing that she did. It's the final thing that she has to atone for in order for them to sort of feel like they're fully a team again. It's such beautiful balance there. She hurt Bellamy because she did not face what she had done before, right? right? She ran away. She didn't face it. So it's like she's atoning for running away by facing it. But that's also the key source of the problem is what they're saying is like, you have to look in the face what you did. Right. And like accept it for yourself and accept the other person and choose forgiveness. I'm kind of okay with the thesis of the show now being that like, listen, there's some shit that people do that they're never going to be able to make up for. But the answer is not to just kill them back, you know? Right, right. That's what we have been doing. Right. You have to decide. You have to decide 
to forgive. And deciding to forgive is on the person who can give forgiveness. It can never be earned. And that's like such a powerful thing. And it like, it fits pretty well with actually all the Christian imagery in this episode. Oh my God. Yeah. Like unearned grace. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I obviously, and we'll get to it in a second. I have many Catholic thoughts about this episode, (laughs) but one of the things that I've been thinking about a little bit ever since we first were sort of talking about, I think it was maybe two podcasts ago where we sort of first dived into what it means when the narrative sort of effectively discredits Juice Drain, Juice Down. Speaking as somebody who is Catholic and spent eight years as a youth minister and is a huge nerd about these things, where my brain goes to when we get an episode like this is this Old Testament, New Testament interpretation of God transition where it's like moral values changing from being about vengeance and survival to moral values being about the building of something new. So you have this sort of an eye for an eye. If the way we tell stories about God is basically the way we tell stories about ourselves, then the idea that in a time and amidst people for whom, you know, this is about survival, this, you know, there's 12 dudes living in the desert and all those laws in Leviticus, you know, like those are all based on like keeping our people alive is our priority right now. And so everything is black and white. It just has to be, you know? And so the transition from interpreting a God in that way to interpreting a God in a completely different other way and sort of leaving those things behind, it's a total shift in value system. And so I think that because we got all these sort of aggressive Christ parallels with the pain story, it made me think about, I don't know if if this is reading sort of too much into what the show is actually trying to say, but it does feel like getting all of this Christian imagery, forgiveness, and, you know, like love your neighbor as yourself, as opposed to here's a million very violent laws about the way that we think that God wants you to behave. It felt very much like the show is in some way sort of mirroring that kind of transition. So I'm interested in the way that it just really seems more and more clear that what we're looking at is the total annihilation of this system of governance that was built on the idea that vengeance is the only way that blood must have blood is sort of the law of the land and that the minute that Lexa turns her back on that as a way to handle conflict and the show thus also is doing it and now we're sort of saying like okay so what do we do instead if we don't meet violence with more reciprocal violence then what do we do and I think that you're right to point out that Clark and Bellamy's partnership 99 times out of 100 I think we're meant to take as kind of the thesis statement of the show and in this situation i felt particularly like we're looking at the thing and we're calling it by what it is and we're still moving forward instead of standing here kind of pummeling each other and i think that we got a lot of parallels in this whole episode particularly i think playing into the kane and abby storyline about the connection between love and honesty that real love contains within it this implicit like I see you for what you are. I accept you for what you are. We have no illusions and that love isn't predicated on you being perfect. Yes. So yeah, so I find... Honesty and acceptance and trust. Yeah. Sort of, and always assuming the best in the other. You know what I mean? Like just kind of like ability to be clear-sighted and yet also put things in the best light, I guess, kind of. Right. Like faith. I mean, I think just having faith in each other. So this is why I think the show, it's moving us towards something new. You know, like this is going to be at the end of the season when this is all over, it's going to be a new world. And all of the old systems are going to be demolished. They're going to have to build something totally new. It's all going to be built on this like shift, like you were saying, away from a kind of, from juice strain, juice down, meet violence with violence to something like moving towards reconciliation and forgiveness 
and sort of like being able to to look at the crimes of the past and not seek vengeance for them. And so Bellamy and Clark are kind of like leading the way. They are the relationship that encapsulates this new way. Yeah. Um, which just like makes me so happy on so many levels. I was really worried, you know, like earlier in the season. Yeah. It was not at all clear where they were going. It was and like going. It, it was just about the rush, you know, it was just like it was the execution thing. The way that this was sort of playing out earlier in the season was much more of a like, well, if your intentions are good, then it's okay sort of thing. Like that was the that yeah. was the we got for Bellamy. Not that like, okay, yes, he did something wrong and that we need to reckon with and understand, but rather like, yeah, but he meant well. Yeah, but he thought it was okay. You know, like and the same thing with Lexa. Well, it's like with Clark and Lexa too, that in both of those situations, we yeah. everyone was like, Well, you had your reasons, I'm sure they were good ones, you meant well. So therefore, let's just drop it. And it's like, well, now wait, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> There's like no sense of accountability. Exactly. And I yeah. think, and I think, yeah. like looking back on it now, I think probably they were trying to set this up. Like I have a feeling that the forgiveness thing with Clark and Lexa was supposed to be setting up something for this, but just because we never, ever, ever got to see Lexa actually like admit that she did something wrong, or even like any acknowledgement of having caused pain it didn't land the same way so getting here now where they're really working through this stuff and kind of dealing with okay what do you do when people have done terrible terrible things but like continuing to do terrible things in retribution is only exacerbating the problem like what do you do right and the answer being you have to affirmatively choose forgiveness and reconciliation and togetherness Clark and Bellamy their refrain has always been together. And it means them. It means Clark and Bellamy. Like, right. especially here, you know, Clark says, we need each other. We got to do this together. Like, it's definitely about them. But I think that's also, like, again, that's the thesis of the show. They are embodying the ethos that everyone is going to ideally have. It makes me happy on so many levels because, like, as a theme for the show, I'm totally into it. I hope they stick this landing because it could be great. As Clark and Bellamy being, like, the central relationship, you know, the kind of like pairing that is the heart of the show and embodying these themes. Like I think when Clark and Billy and me are together and they're click, the show works, you know, and this is why yeah. is because yeah. they kind of embody these things. And but yeah. also yeah. because I ship them. I'm like, <laughs> oh yes, that's right. My OTP is like the representation of all oh that God. is good and right in this universe. <laughs> no, I was thinking that too. It was a big night for both of us in some very yeah, different fun. ways, you know, fun. but... It's remarkable to me. Well, I guess remarkable is the wrong word because it's what the show is based on. But it is, it's a marked contrast to the first half of this season when the show splits Clark and Bellamy up for an extended period of time. I think things really suffer. I got an ask on Tumblr late last night about why do the writers continue over and over again to make that choice to split them up? And I'm not always clear. I mean, I, I think it's a practical reality, I think, in this season of the fact that which in theory I'm on board with, of course, that they had significant individual roles to play in storylines that were taking place in separate places, which isn't in and of itself a negative. Like to me, it isn't so much that they were geographically separated. It's that it was as though in Polis, she didn't rem remember that he existed. Like they lack object permanence. Right, you know? right, like, exactly. Not, yeah. The first half when they were not in each other's presence, they were like not allowed to remember that the other one existed. Yeah. And like, I think a lot of that, honestly, I think it had to do... I mean, it was the rush, but it was just like, 
They were so worried, I think, about having a love triangle. Yeah, with Clark they overcompensated and in the other direction. Because like Lexa and Bellamy know each other. They were part of the same like battle squad in season two. And people have a lot more capacity for nuance, I think, than that writing choice gives them credit for. That like yeah. you can wholeheartedly pursue a romantic relationship between Clark and Lexa because that's the story that you're telling without asking everyone to forget that Bellamy exists because and this is something too that grates on me a little bit Lexa and Bellamy are only foils for each other in the minds of the fandom they're not narratively in any way set up as like they're two key relationships in Clark's life and the relationships are super significant and different and there are interesting sort of parallels and things to mine but I think you lose something when you're looking at both of them only in comparison to each other like to me like Lexa's most interesting when you think about her as a parallel to Kane and a foil to Antari the way Pike is a foil to Kane. The leadership yeah. parallels yeah. are really interesting. Yeah. You know, and Bellamy and Kane and Bellamy and Clark, Bellamy and Abby, like there's so many interesting characters that they sort of overlap with. And I think that there's this sort of black and white mentality that it's like, hey, like you can either only like one or the other, but also that they're intended always to be depicted as opposites or as contrasts or as Clark sort of or in the middle. at odds with each other. At odds with each just- other and or Clark in the middle between them. And I think that sort of yeah. shortchanges everybody yeah. because they're all much messier and more complicated than that. Yeah. And I think like a huge problem of the season is that I really think on multiple levels, the writers were way too involved in fandom. Like, yeah, way too involved. One of the less direct ways that that's true is that it is so palpably clear from the way that they wrote Clark and her relationships this season that they were hyper aware of the fandom's reactions to characters and of the ship war. Yeah. And they wrote around it. Like, they were so paranoid about it. Yeah. That they, like, seriously wrote it so that, like, Clark could not mention one in the presence of the other. You know, like, they could not, like, they could basically almost not exist. And, like, it's almost still happening. Like, Clark is sort of looking at the flame. But, like, Lexa has really receded to very, very little acknowledgement of her now that Clark is back with Bellamy. Like, we got that, like, she's looking at the flame. She's not totally forgotten. It's there. You know, she talks about it with it. So it's not quite as, like, total object permanence fail. But it still kind of feels like, well, Clark can't be, you know, like, they're, like, sort of like, all right, well, it's Clark time, so it's got to, like, Lexa's got to go away. And it's like, that's not... You are writing it like a love triangle. You backed into writing a love triangle because you tried so hard not to write a love triangle. You overcompensated and swung the other direction. Personally, as a viewer, it upsets me on a lot of levels that Clark has never talked about her relationship with Lexa with anybody. Like, it feels a little creepily closeted. And I understand why the choice has been made that she's a person who processes grief internally. You know that there's a lot of deaths that she's only beginning to reckon with. She doesn't talk about her dad much. The Wells thing and the Finn thing are jarring when Evil Raven brings them up because we haven't seen her dealing with them. I think we're meant to believe that she's sort of still processing all those things and she's just not a person who talks about her emotions a lot. So like there's a level in which it feels like it makes some character sense. But again, an unexamined thing this show hasn't reckoned with is the fact that there hasn't been at any point a moment with any of these people that she is the closest to where she has explicitly addressed the fact that they had a romantic relationship. And again, I think like 
the only reason for her not to have that conversation with Bellamy, who's arguably her closest friend, is because, again, it's a writing choice that it's like Lexa and Bellamy can't be in the same room. Like you're either in yeah. one or the other. And the I feel most like- thing that have happened is that Clark is going to look mournfully at the flame and Bellamy's going to like look at that and then look at her. Yeah. And, like a kind of like silent moment of like acknowledgement. But like, yeah. that's not really enough. You it's know? not like- enough. And it feels like, you know, the writers have addressed many times that it was not anyone's explicit intention to create the sense that it's because Lexa was gay that she died. But the real world context of that is like, Okay, but she was shot by somebody who was mad about her relationship with Clark, who was like right. an older patriarchal <laughs> white man. So it's like, right. like yeah, you, like, like I know no. you didn't mean that, but like that's not how it looks to like nineteen-year-old closeted girls in small towns with homophobic parents. So just like be aware right. of that context. And yeah. I think that not letting her have the ability to talk about her relationship with her friends, like a scene between her and Octavia and Raven, like everyone has a dead lover now, and Bellamy too. Bellamy lost Gina. Yeah. Everyone yeah. in this cast has lost a dead lover. So to let them, like, can there be a little bit of something? Because it feels like a missed opportunity. I think that, again, like, the unexamined, inadvertent, closetedness of Clark's relationship with Lexa, now that the narrative has shifted back to Belark, is one of those things where it's like, I don't think that it occurred to anyone writing this story arc the way that that feels like Clark is again sort of being asked to not be her full authentic self, you know, and it gets yeah. into some of the creepy yeah. by erasure that you see in the fandom a lot where it's like, yeah. you know, assuming that you can sort of be one or the other. And it's like, what would it say about Clark as a person and Clark's relationship with Lexa to let her be able to comfortably and openly talk about that with Bellamy. It's like, again, like, it's not intentional. Nobody meant to use it to make people feel bad, but it's another thing that I think wasn't looked at as closely as it should have. And it really makes those moments where we see her sort of pull out the chip and look at it, and then the moment goes away. I wish they could push that, like, a little more. I agree. So anyway, so, okay, the scene where they take the knockout juice. Yeah. And by the way, I just have to say... That hug went on for a long time. That was a long-ass hug, and it and took literal, like, aquatic underwater murder grounders to break it up. Like, they were going to keep hugging. Like, they were just going to, like, stand there, cradling each other gently in uh, their arms. It was so beautiful. It was so it beautiful. Was so- <laughs> 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 like, all night long. Uh, uh, if it had well, not been for Luna's Navy Seals. I know. But the, uh, Luna's the- Navy Seals. <laughs> <laughs> knockout juice yeah that was so hilarious like like you were saying we were doing the rewatch right before this jasper being like kind of back to being jasper Jasper was on point oh god it was like it was so nice like oh jasper like i remember when you were just like the comic relief and he was like perfect comic relief this oh my god yeah it was exactly right and i loved that clark and bellamy when they took the juice they like sat down on the ground yeah like good job guys (laughs) that's why you're the mom and dad and octavia and jasper are the kids yeah but like just to close out the the portion of the show where i'm just like a slightly shipper um like the fact that they like looked at each other clark said together and they took it together and then bellamy like gazed at her as he was Maybe possibly dying. Like, he didn't know what was happening. He yeah. could have been dying. He was just like, I'm just going to look at your face while I lose consciousness. I definitely, like, squealed a little bit when oh I was watching yeah. that this morning. <laughs> it's just stuff like that where I'm like, okay, guys. It's like, this isn't a thing in season four. I don't know what you think you're doing. Right, exactly. Um, yeah. Then you're making some really poor choices. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And I did like the nice little parallel to when he thought he was dying in the last episode and the last yeah, thing that he wanted to see was Octavia. Octavia. Yeah. And so it felt like this was a nice little 
Bellamy facing death and wanting the last thing that he sees to be somebody that he cares about. And it was underplayed. Like, he's willing to face death. Yeah. He doesn't fight back or struggle and complain. He's like, all right, if this is it, this is it. But taking those little moments of eye contact, you know, like looking at Octavia and looking at Clark, it was very sweet. And it was also very much like, I think anytime that this show draws parallels between Clark and Octavia in terms of their importance to Bellamy, I think that those moments are always worth noting as well. I agree. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I also think it's really important for Clark, this episode and what they did, this advanced Clark as much as it did Bellamy in terms yeah. of characters. Because if you think about like, she needed to hear Bellamy say that that she heard him and face up to that. But I think yeah. also if you think about Clark as a character, particularly since the middle of the second season, but kind of always, I mean, I guess since season two, at least, you know, like since Finn died and she sent Bellamy into Mount Weather, she's kind of like been operating on this assumption that she's in charge all on her own. You know, like right. everything is on her shoulders. Right. She's the one in charge. She's the one who has to make all the decisions. And we got the little moment, you know, like at the end of season two, we have the together moment where he pulled the lever and Bellamy kind of like, he tried to shoulder that with her, you know, like he yeah. tried to say like, we did this and she wouldn't let him, you know? So like, this was like a really like, I think of a lovely way that it, that it sort of like is resolving Clark's story from season two is that, he tried to offer her, you know, sort of partnership and someone to share her burden and she couldn't let him. For her, it just didn't feel right. She felt the guilt so much that she couldn't let go of it enough to let him help her. Yeah. And so for her this time to say, we need each other, you know, yeah. to say like, the only way we're going to do this is together. And then look at him again, you know, in that moment where they're taking the, the thing and say together, you know, just get, and like, and all those tiny little moments last episode and this episode where every time there's, there's a decision to be made, you know, she looks at him. When they get to the, what they thought was a village that isn't. Yeah. They don't know what to do, you know, and Jasper asks Bellamy and Clark looks at Bellamy, you know, and like when they discover the green fire and she looks for him. I think those are the little moments that affirm that when Clark says together now, when she says we need each other and when she says together, she really, really means it. You know, she's yeah. not just trying to convince Bellamy because she needs him there to do something. These are the moments that are conveying to us as the audience that she really, truly understands that she isn't on her own anymore, that she needs to rely on other people and that specifically she needs Bellamy and she can rely on him and she should rely on him and she does. Yeah. And so like all these little moments of like her affirming togetherness, not just as a kind of like platitude and not as an expedient, you know, but right, rather right. as like a way of being and operating in the world and needing someone emotionally too, because that's something that she's never let herself have yeah. and so I think that's what we're seeing here I think so too one of the things that I've loved the most about all of 3B so far is how it feels like it's really circling us back to and maybe this is actually a really good transition to the arc flashbacks it's circling us back to the delinquents as a unit and to those bonds that we began to see forming in season one that have been really what the heart of the show is and that the show's kind of moved Towards and away and towards and away from those things. But it felt to me like I, I agree with you that her saying together in that moment was sort of the show re-cementing both their bond, you know, the two of them, and also this sort of larger group relationship that they're at the heart of that they represent, which is all of the hundred, all of the kids, that yeah. sort of original group. I think it was really cool to see that juxtaposed with I loved everything about the way they used the flashbacks in this yeah. episode. I thought that on a sort of technical level, the way that they were written and structured and edited 
to move in and out with the present day story was seamlessly done. You know, like Pike teaching everybody about how to make fire and then Octavia being shown making the fire the way that they showed them. But the sort of beginnings of the relationships among that group, you know, and and the beautiful in memoriam of like, there's Fox, there's Monroe, there's Roma, yeah. you know, like, hi, dead friends. Like, yeah. Oh, God. And like, it was like so bittersweet because I was like, oh, it's Fox. Oh, God. Fox. Yeah. You know, uh, like, oh, Fox, honey, I know it's going to happen to you and it's going to oh. be terrible. Yeah. And then, of course, then the reminder that there weren't 100, there were 99, you know, yeah. which, which I also well, liked. Been well hadn't been arrested yet. Well hadn't been arrested yet. And, you know, and of course, and the the music like you know using that that really slow haunting cover of the same song yeah. from the pilot which was a really ballsy choice that i thought could have failed but actually worked really well yeah. yeah i thought it was beautiful and you know i think there's been a lot of careful work done in 3b to in many different ways take us back to the beginning back to its roots which isn't to say that it isn't still sort of complicated by the kind of the game of thrones factor that we'll get to when we transition to polis in a minute but it feels like the show in some ways is beginning to remember the thing that made it so strong which is that we care about these people and their relationships so much and seeing them you know young and clean and sitting in those chairs being grumpy and goofing off and nobody paying attention you know the little harper miller jasper giggle trio and murphy you know sitting in the back and being the sassmeister because of course he was we didn't ever know what he got arrested for so now we know that it was arson and again, blood must have blood. He was punishing mm -hmm. the guard who was responsible for both his parents dying. I have a lot of thoughts about Pike, which we'll get to in a second. But just in terms of the delinquents in those flashbacks, I thought it was really lovely after getting the delinquents save Raven bottle episode, after getting the sort of second bottle episode in a row when they go back to Arcadia last time, like getting so much focus on that core team. It added a really lovely emotional resonance to that to show them all like together before they were a unit, like before they were really a family, when they were just sort of like a bunch of kids who didn't know each other. And, you know, you're looking at that room and you're like, three quarters of you are going to be dead. That scene of them getting on board the dropship was so poignant, you know, because, of course, we know all of the terrible things that are going to happen to them. It's the most aggressive, dramatic irony where it's like, you have no idea, Monroe and Fox and Roma, that you're going to die. And we all know. Oh. And the fact that Bellamy grabbed Roma when he was getting on the drop. That was, oh my God, that, the that perfect little Bellamy cameo. Because, yeah. because we, you know, just seeing how he gets on board the dropship, you know, and seeing him walking past Kane and Abby and them not reacting was just like remembering when none of these people knew each other. Because he was just a janitor then. He was like a janitor yeah. who stole a guard uniform, you know. Yeah, so terrible, terrible hair. Everyone's season one hair. Yeah. <laughs> it was great that Bellamy went on the dropship, like right, like he followed Clark on. Yes, know? which like, was again, like, what, one after the yeah. other which is a nice little parallel yeah um yeah no i thought that was all like really really beautifully and poignantly done and the dramatic irony was just like really effective and painful but i yeah. thought i thought they did a good job of kind of like reminding you of where they all started like, six months ago yeah emotionally reminding us where they started in terms of their relationships to each other and also who they were at the time mm -hmm. i was like and it killed me too like another part of that when they were getting on the ship that just like punched me in the heart this is not like a big jasper episode but like Jasper getting on the dropship and looking around kind of in a panic and saying, where's Monty? Where's Monty? Seen yeah, Monty? Yeah. And I was just like, oh God, which like, it actually made me happy a little bit because that just confirms for me like, okay, so like Jasper's story from here to the end of the season, the thing that's going to be resolving for Jasper is going to be Monty at this point. Like that their, yeah. their stories are really together and it's going to be about how they 
they're gonna have to like reconcile somehow or work that out and so like yeah. just having him sort of like reminding us that Jasper at the, from the beginning has always been like Monty has been his number one it made sense in terms of like the flashback but I, right. I was also just like narratively that little dropping yeah. in there like hey remember you right. know like they're brothers it's always been like this so yeah. that was that made me happy what I really liked about how the flashbacks were used was that it felt like every moment that we saw in flashback was chosen incredibly deliberately many of them had payoffs in this episode but that also I think many of them like the Jasper and Monty one are meant to set up future payoffs you know so we had clear shortcut parallels to like Octavia in class learning about fire to Octavia making a fire you know we have the first moment that John Murphy meets Charles Pike and then we flash to them meeting again in the prison. So some of them, the parallels were that overt and that direct. I think the Jasper and Monty one and also the Clark and Abby one are foreshadowing future moments. So, you know, I think the fact that we see Clark being taken on board the dropship and Abby saying, may we meet again, I think again fits into sort of the idea that in the finale, there's going to end up being a really significant confrontation between Clark and Abby while her mom still has the chip. Um, and also the nice little callback to the screaming sexual tension between season <laughs> one, Kane and Abby. Everything that we saw, I think, in those flashbacks was meant to give us an important piece of information that we need about who and where those characters are right now. Like up to and including that like Harper and Miller were sort of already low-key buds, you know, sitting in the back of the class kind of goofing off together. Of which I think arguably I would say the two most significant things coming from those flashbacks were Jaha and Pike. I think that with Jaha, it's not a coincidence. I think it's super key and fits really nicely into what we were talking about last time about, you know, is Allie changed? Has she been changed or altered in some significant material way? by who are the minds that she's in relationship with. So I think that the reminder that Jaha was always ruthless, that he was always, no matter how much he loved his son, which I'm sure he did, willing to put an abstract greater good above an individual relationship in a way mm-hmm. that the show is really clearly setting up for us that you're not supposed to do that, that that isn't mm-hmm. the right choice, and that Jaha has always been the person who values the abstraction, who values the way things are done, the way things are. And so the way that we see him kind of not batting an eye at sending Wells down to the ground and not allowing Pike to, you know, Pike asking to get sent down with the kids was the part that sort of melted my heart. Like that was the biggest, I was like, oh, Pike, I've always loved you. (laughs) (laughs) You And now we transition to our weekly segment, Pike Apologism with Claire. (laughs) (laughs) This is a big episode for, for my, my like, Pike Apologism with Claire. Oh my God. Yeah. This is, this is what it's all been building to. I'm so excited. I'm so excited to talk about Pike. So, uh, we've touched on this a number of different times that we get traces sort of throughout the show of sort of the pike that could have been in the pike that was largely written and I think to some degree even shot where we had a lot more complexity and nuance in his character and in his relationship with people and I think that in some ways the only thing salvaging the pike that we got in 3a is the fact that Mike Beach is a tremendous actor because yeah. anything that makes him relatable empathetic compassionate human is from his acting you know because a lot of that was cut in the writing you know so you're making choices about how you view this character based on things that aren't really on the screen that were sort of 
once on the screen and are therefore embedded in the actor's performance. So I don't blame anyone coming into this episode who's watching only what's on the screen, who's looking at it like, Pike is an irredeemable monster. Why are you trying to make me like him at the 11th hour? Like, that's fair. I think for me, what I find really intriguing about him is that sense of like, who was the original Pike that they intended to give to us? And if it is this man, we were missing some key information in episodes two through everything, you know, to make that, (laughs) like, to make that fit. But then again, this episode is literally us watching... Charles Pike, the Earth Skills teacher, become Charles Pike, the Grounder Killer. And the key to that transition is Jaha. I've always believed that the key to Kane's transition in season two, to where he starts becoming the good guy slash future Christ figure um, (laughs) that he becomes, the transition away from becoming the sort of like rigid law and order asshole and into becoming the man of peace and the good leader that he is at the beginning of this season. And there's some stops and starts to it throughout the way in season two. But the transition, to me, it feels like the moment that gets overlooked when you sort of talk about key milestones in Marcus Kane's character arc is Jaha leaving. The removal of Jaha's oppressive influence and Jaha as the (laughs) model that everybody has for how you are a leader because he was a (laughs) chancellor on the arc. The title of the episode of this week in Pike Apologism is Jaha is the worst, everybody. Jaha (laughs) is the worst. Jaha is the literal worst. And I and Jaha is the source of all evil. He really is, yeah. And and in a way that I find actually narratively really satisfying, like we talked about before, like the evolution of Jaha from rigid asshole who's more or less on your side and is friends with these people to being the kind of ultimate big bad of season three, I think is actually brilliant. But I liked what we see of Pike being a person who has this earnest and totally genuine desire to help these kids survive. And that is the motive that we are not shown, but told is what made him the person he is when we meet him in season three. He developed this mentality fighting to keep everybody alive. And so, you know, he's trying to get it through these kids. He's trying and trying and trying. They're not listening because he can't tell them the truth. And so he ends up in the end resorting to threats and then eventually outright violence to get them to listen. And that's because Jaha pushed him there. Like, Jaha wouldn't yeah. let him do it a different way. Jaha wouldn't let him do the right way. Like, Pike was right. Like Pike was right. They, uh, yeah. they aren't listening. They aren't paying attention because they have no reason to care. Because teaching Earth skills on the Ark, I'm sure, had to be kind of a thankless job. You know, you're teaching right. skills to people that they know they're not going to use. You right. know, right. that like that, that are like, completely abstract. You know, it's the day before they go down. If Jaha had just been like okay, yeah, like, tell them that, like, tomorrow you're going to be on the ground, so you better know how to do this stuff. The flashbacks work so beautifully in this episode, but, like, the Pike side of those flashbacks, God, we needed those, like, in, like, episode five. You we know really I mean? did. Like, we needed those yeah. in the first half of the season. Yeah. We needed that backstory because, like, that that transition, that moment when Pike sort of hit the, the point of desperation where he was like, I have to do something fucked up. Right. In order to, like, get these kids to a place where they're not going to die when they hit the ground. Right. That's, like, such a humongously key moment for Pike. And I think, like, this is where, you know, like I said, like, the line where Pike said the key to survival is never stop fighting. Yes. You know, never, never give up. I think that's a really important line. And it's a complicated line because, like, because Pike says it. And the version of that that Pike obviously winds up with in the first half of the season is disastrous, right? Like, his version of never stop fighting means like preemptively kill a bunch of people right Right. like that's obviously not right 
but we sort of see the moment where that transitions from never stop fighting to stay alive, you know, like never stop fighting for the people that you care about into something, it sort of like metastasizes into something yeah. more sinister or more, or sort of like misdirected or something, you know, like, like physical fighting, right? Like right, it goes right. from metaphorical, like fight to survive to physically, like I'm going to beat up John Murphy in order to like force the rest of you to get up out of your seats and feel solidarity with him and feel empathy with him so that when you hit the ground, you have some sense of togetherness that will prevent you from falling apart into factions and dying. Like that's right. what he was trying to do. Well, and then when he says like that, you pointed out when we were watching the episode again, and I think we'll hit this, you know, the sort of overarching theme of unity and breaking out of barriers, but that he reinforces that like, it's not enough for you to just have like the handful of kids from your own station that you know, like all of you need to be in this together. Like all 99 yeah. of you need all 99 of you for yeah. any of you to survive. And Think- what he's saying is like the old factions, the old things that you believed divided you, you yeah. need to forget those. Yes. You need to sort of like reimagine what it means to be together. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like that's what that moment is about. Yeah. And I think that that's a really important Again, in terms of lines that become thesis statements for this show, I think that the sort of gradual breaking down, which has now just, you know, turned into outright crumbling of those old ways based on the fact that the enemy now is their own people, but under Jaha and Ali's influence. And and that's something that I think is, in some ways, is the the key to what's going to make the dissolution of these boundaries and this sort of the old ways permanent is like in the first season the sort of us versus them was the kids versus the grounders and then they sort of made peace with and they allied with the grounders they built this alliance with lex so they teamed up with the grounders and they were fighting this other external force which was the mountain men and i think that it's really key that in the third season there is an outside force of Allie, but Allie can't do anything without people. And so the actual people yeah. from whom you're in actual danger are your own friends, family, loved ones that are under the influence of this thing. But this sort of sense of like the enemy is us, the enemy within, like both like Allie inside your own yeah. mind and also that threats are coming from the people that you are the closest to and that you trust the most and that therefore you have to start forming new alliances. You have to step over those lines. You have to kind of erode, you know, like Indra can't afford to take her vengeance on Pike right now, even though that's what her tradition dictates, because there are like 12 people in that prison who are all that's left that have resisted the key and they don't have the manpower. And that Murphy, who's the show's one sort of pure pragmatist, Murphy has no real ideals. And so the thing that Murphy can see that Indra can't right now, and that even Pike kind of can't right now, is that the enemy is everybody. We're all that's left. We don't have the luxury of hiding behind that I'm a grounder you're a sky person you killed my people and it's like yeah that's true like that'll come back up later but right now we don't have room for any of those boundaries anymore and so it's emotionally and narratively satisfying knowing what we know about the journey that all those kids have gone on to see the ways in which they all learned more from Pike than they thought that they did That for all of them, you know, for all the ones who survived, that something of what he tried to teach them did sink in because they did team up and stay alive. And so having that sort of play into the moment where 
as I hoped, the adjoining prison cells of plot convenience. (laughs) You know, know, having Murphy and Pike and Indra, who all hate each other in every different combination, but also have different sets of important information and are all leaders. I mean, like Pike and Indra, obviously in canon and Murphy sort of becoming one and Murphy being the one who knows everything. So I liked that glimpse into Pike's lessons really sticking. And I liked that transition into us seeing the ways that that plays out in the world that they're in now with some really sort of interesting future ramifications. And I feel like placing the beginnings of the humanization, I think it's maybe too early to call it a redemption arc, but the humanization arc of Charles Pike this late in the season seems to me to say what we're going to get over the next three episodes and I, it's still probably more likely than not, I would say 60-40, that I think he's still going to die, but that he's going to die in a way that expresses, I think, an atonement and continues the process of the eroding of those lines. He's going to, you know, go into battle side by side with Indra, you know, like the two of them and Murphy sort of leading the rebel squad together. I think it's thematically really important that, like you said, these that we have three characters who all hate each other right for different reasons who are being forced to set aside all of the terrible things they've done to each other the various people have done to each other um in order to sort of like move forward and and save everyone like i think like like that's like that's the plot but i think that's also thematically very like symbolically very important that that's what's happening at this point i suspect that pike is gonna die and and like maybe die saving Kane or maybe die saving Indra or you know something like that but like I think it's interesting there seems to be a pattern possibly emerging in which like if you're a person who's done something really terrible this season if you're going to atone for it or eventually be redeemed for it in any way you have to bleed for it yeah Um, the atonement has to be physical and gross (laughs) it's like that's where blood must have blood is moved like to the extent that blood must still have blood you know, like, Bellamy had to bleed for Lincoln, which, like, I still hate that, but, like, whatever, I think that's kind of, like, there's a certain sort of pattern to that with Pike having to sort of look Indra in the eye and reckon with her while she's drawing blood from him. So I think the fact that he had to endure that torture, even if Murphy stopped her from killing him, you know, and and not just Murphy, I guess, but actually the other, I think it was, like... The other grounder woman really was the one. The grounder woman was, like, you know, a grounder who, who you would think would be, like, yeah, kill him, who's, like, no, you have to stop. Like, Murphy's right. Yeah. That was very, very clearly a moment where the show is once again saying revenge is not the answer. Right, exactly. Like, revenge is yeah. counterproductive. Understandable. It's We all know where Indra's coming from and we all completely right. understand and like, this is righteous. You know what I mean? But you need to be able to set that aside. I mean, if seek higher things is the key to the flame. Right. Then that might be one way where the show is, where that theme of seek higher things is playing out. You yeah. have to seek the higher road, which is... Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Accepting that, accepting that you have the right to revenge, uh-huh. but that you should not take it. That's actually a really interesting way of looking at it, because it also ties into discussing our Lord and Savior, Marcus Cain. But but the, <laughs> the transition from sort of warlike theology into a turn-the-other-cheek theology... I think is actually borne out really nicely. The difference between an eye for an eye and turn the other cheek is literally the difference between blood must have blood and seek higher things. And so I think this show is setting up for us that both of these very militaristic and very violent cultures, the sort of the Exodus charter version of the Ark and the very juice drain, juice down version of grounder culture, those things being dissolved into something that is building something new that's about 
defending ideals and, you know, and everybody being united and not about vengeance. First of all, I think it sets up a potentially really cool season four, where I would imagine where we land in some way, whoever the big bad ends up being, whatever the big conflict, you know, is that we get, that it's going to be told sort of around and inside of the story of the scrappy handful of remaining survivors of both the sky people and the grounders being one society building something from scratch, you know, because enough people are going to have to die in this final climactic alley battle that the old divisions no longer make sense. You know, that there being 13 clans versus there being one people no longer makes sense. So I think that it isn't a coincidence that the episode that gives us, I think, the most explicit thematic weaving throughout of that transition from the old ways to the new ways is also the episode where we get you know like if I had a Christ figure bingo card and was crossing things (laughs) off of it you know like let's begin with the ceremonial procession through the gates of Jerusalem where he the homecoming (laughs) to the city that has changed while he was gone and then the like betrayed with a kiss willing to die for his people you know and the crucifix and the hammer I mean it was all I was just like this is the most Catholic episode of television I've ever seen in my life and it was of course Marcus Kane who I love and so it was just horrifying to watch but really I think Kane at the center of tying those themes together because he's the one of the sky people who's the most emblematic of that new way Pike was the old way and Kane was the new way Kane was the man of peace Kane was the one who had learned from the terrible things that they had all done to each other and the terrible choices that he'd made and had looked at the world that they lived in and wanted to build a better one and was the one who was fighting for unity and for them to become one people. And what I think is interesting is that the sort of reinforcing of the idea that unity is what Jaha and Ali want. Like, I think what's going to happen is season four is going to be about how that is the end result and because of Jaha and Ali, but not in the way they intended. I think it's also really important to look at like, what do Jaha and Ali call unity right. versus other forms of unity, other models for unity that we might be seeing? And especially in comparison to the unity of the arc. You know, if you think back to the original Unity Day episode, yeah. it's this sort of happy little, we tell the story of how the stations came together. And Finn reminds us in that first episode that it's a fiction Right. To sort of paper over the conflict, the bloody, dangerous, you know, sort of like violent conflict that led to unity. And mm-hmm. then we were reminded of that in 307, which I think everyone forgets because Lexa died and like no one remembers. But like we got the Becca flashbacks to Unity Day. So we know that the flame and, you know, all the, this commander stuff, like this all is connected to like the original Arc Unity Unity Day. God, that really is hard to say. Um, (laughs) The original Arc Unity Day was the day that the commander came to the ground. And it is forged out of this violence. So the unity that Abby talks about and and Jaha and Ali, the kind of city of light unity, is a unity that is forged by forcibly erasing difference. So the idea is that the only way towards unity is uniformity, essentially. So if you take all these people and put them, like diverse people and put them together, what you have to do is is like erase their differences, erase their distinctions, erase all conflict between them, basically erase the people. Right. And that the result, which is a sort of passive placidity, is unity. 
But that's an elusive unity, right? That's right. not unity, that's oppression. It's a lack of conflict, but that's not the same thing as unity. So that's being contrasted with the kind of unity that we get in the prison cell at the end of the episode with Indra and Pike and Murphy. Right. Where, like, they are united by the end of that. Yeah. With one another. In that they all are, they're kind of like in this together, you know, and they have a common enemy. But, like, that unity was forged not by erasing their differences or all of them forgetting the past, but rather all of them sort of voluntarily saying there are more important things and we will set that aside. Right. You know, we will accept each other's, the problems in each other's differences and continue to work together. You know, and to some extent, unity is kind of like another theme that we see with the Luna Adventure Squad, too, right? Like, there's some fracturing because... Octavia isn't there. But we see unity between Clark and Bellamy. And like we were saying, again, it comes from acceptance of each other, not from erasing things, not from being like, we're just going to forget the past, but remembering the past and being able to move forward. So I think we are getting a very clear kind of contrast between like true unity, togetherness versus false. What I think is really interesting is the way that one of the things that's been slowly percolating all along, but was made really, really textual and explicit in this one is that that has always been Jaha's mentality. You know, like we talked about in the last couple episodes, each new piece of information that we get about how Ali works, how Ali interacts with people, we got a really good peek behind the curtain of how Ali interacted with Raven, which was really sort of the center of Nevermore. And I think this episode gave us a lot of new information about Ali and Jaha, because we saw flashback Jaha before any of this had happened, behaving in ways that feel very much not just tied to how he behaves now, but to how Ali behaves now in a way that really, I think, makes explicit what you were talking about last time about sort of wondering how was Ali changed by being trapped in a house with Elonius Jaha for three months? And the answer seems to be a fuck ton because she now thinks yeah her more than him because he's the least outwardly changed he's more ruthless you know like we talked about before like it's the removal of empathy and compassion and any sort of feeling for human relationships or ability to connect to other humans that's the thing that ali takes away from you it was raven with no compassion for jasper's feelings and it's abby knowing Kane well enough to know that the card she should play is I'm worried about Clark and that he will instantly tell her everything. It's tactical empathy that's about like, I say this and a human being reacts X way. But what's interesting about what we're seeing with Jaha and Ali in this episode is that the distance isn't so long between real Jaha and chipped Jaha as it is for everybody else. Like the difference between Raven and Abby under the influence of Allie versus not is night and day. And Jaha has not. Jaha's not. And what I think is never, never forget that Jaha is the one who was like, we got to take away free will. Like that was his idea. It was his idea. Yeah. And it was like, it was made clear, like just in case you thought that that was in some way, Allie influencing him in a way that circled back to him influencing Allie, we were reminded again in the way that he talked about Wells and his refusal to let Pike go down to earth with the kids and the difference between the way Abby looks when she's reminded that Clark is going to go to the ground versus the way Jaha looks when he's reminded that Wells is going to go to the ground, like the parental kind of contrast. We've got so much material and really sort of subtly and deftly handled in those flashbacks that remind us that all along... 
this is who Jaha has been. And the difference, it's in some ways, it's like he's the same person, but he now has the biggest weapon in the room and can do whatever mm-hmm. he wants to. But that he himself has not been fundamentally changed into an unrecognizable monster person in the way that Raven and Abby were. And that's fascinating to me because in some ways it's like Allie isn't turning everyone into versions of Allie. She's turning everyone into versions of sort of Allie flavored heavily by Jaha. Like they all sort of think like little Jahas now, which is super terrifying. What Jaha always wanted was to be able to like completely set aside his regret and emotional connections and like right that was like what does he say this to Kane? No, this is I was gonna say I think this moment is so important and so underrated for Jaha and for Kane but he tells him you're gonna be a good leader because you have a strength unweakened by sentiment which in hindsight is hilarious because it's like (laughs) you don't know Kane at all Kane is all sentiment but Kane repressed that because Jaha expected him to and so season one Kane is playing the role of being again like a mini Jaha because the kind of leader that Jaha is and what Jaha demonstrates to you that leadership looks like is not having feelings feelings are inconvenient feelings get in the way you don't want them and so he tells Kane and you can tell that Jaha thinks it's a compliment and Kane's reaction sort of is like he's just been slapped in the face. And knowing what we know now about Kane being like nonstop crazy emotions, you know, like Kane screaming when Abby's on the table in Matt Weather and Kane drunkenly crying after the culling, like Kane feels so goddamn many feelings. But Kane has been cultured by Jaha that it is important that being a leader means not doing that. So I think that in some ways, in hindsight, three seasons in, that line says so much more about Jaha than it does about Kane. I think those callbacks to pre-chip Jaha in terms of what sort of is setting up the final climactic conflict are, I would say, arguably the most important bits of that flashback for us to hold on to is the reminder that Allie, if somebody else had found her first that this all could have gone totally differently. Like if Raven had found the lighthouse, if it had been Raven who was co-opted by Allie, the different way that things could have turned out is really fascinating to think about because Jaha's personality and influence and Jaha's tyrannical rigidity and the idea that when you're the leader, you just unilaterally make decisions based on what's the best for your people. You know, that he's always been that person and the difference is only perspective. It's what side he was on because in the beginning of the first season, he's one of our guys. And now he's the biggest enemy the show has ever had because he knows these people, he knows their weaknesses, he's of them. There's a reluctance I think that we see when he first arrives in Arcadia to see him as the bad guy because he's like the former president you know like he used to be the chancellor there's a respect that comes with that office and so Pike's moment of realization that the Jaha problem is also on him I think is an interesting sort of side because Pike didn't fight him Pike's like you can have your little cult you know like do your little weirdo church thing in the corner just don't get in my way whatever that's fine And And then it's like, oh, whoops. Add to the list of Pike's catastrophic misjudgments. You know, like the moment (laughs) where Pike's own farm station guys turn on him. What's interesting about that moment is it's like Pike was so blinded by looking for enemies outside the gates that Jaha slipped right in under his nose. We talked about Trojan horses a little bit when we were logging our season predictions. You know, when Gina gives Bellamy the Iliad and it's like, okay, so what's the symbolism of that moment? You know, and what I've been thinking about a lot in light of this episode is that I think 
we were sort of looking at it like the Trojan horse says Echo because that's how Gina dies. Gina gives in the book. Echo is sort of the snake in the grass who sort of helps like sneak inside and that's how the mountain yeah. Gina gets bombed. But I actually think in hindsight, I think that there's Trojan horse situations throughout the whole season in, you know, all kinds of ways, this whole sort of sense of like the most dangerous enemy is always you. It's always the person who knows you. It's always the person who's inside, you know, because they have access. Allie is dangerous because she can get inside Raven's tactical strategic mind and use the things that Raven knows about Clark and Bellamy and Jasper to trick them into giving away information. And she can get inside Abby and manipulate Kane into giving up what conveniently, obviously, little information that he has, which is so much more dangerous than just somebody walking in and holding a gun to your head. It's so much more terrifying. I mean, also, like, Jaha and Ali were the Trojan horse in Arcadia. Yeah. You know, like you said, Pike was looking outside. Yeah. He was looking at the grounder army, you know, surrounding them, which never materialized. Right. And he failed to recognize that the enemy within was actually the one that was going to take him down. Yeah. And on several levels, too, because he didn't recognize Kane's rebellion squad. Yeah. So there's, there's Trojan horses there. I think also probably we're being set up to see the flame and whoever goes in, probably Clark is another Trojan horse. Is yeah. Kind of like coming in the back door to take it down. I hope. I really, really hope that Kane and Abby are going to wind up being Trojan horses. Yes. Inside the City of Light, unbeknownst to Ali and Jaha, because now that they're both in there, maybe this yeah. won't happen, but I just feel like- I feel like that too. Find each other in there. If the glitch in the City of Light is love, well, now you've got two people inside of there who love each other and love everyone else so much. So I, I kind of feel like maybe they're going to wind up being Trojan horses. I think so you know, too. It's such I, a big deal that they're both inside. I think so too. I think it's been a missed opportunity all season that I hope they're going to remedy in the finale. That we haven't seen anyone inside the City of Light yet but Jaha. I wanted Raven in there so bad and we didn't get her. We didn't get Abby in there before. I sort of thought we were going to because Paige was credited in Nevermore. And there is that last little at the end Jaha Ali scene and I wondered if potentially that we were supposed to get like Abby in the City of Light and it was cut but that we haven't seen what it is like to be inside the City of Light for any character except Jaha whose experience obviously is the outlier for everybody because the thing that Kane and Abby have in common is that neither of them wanted to take the chip neither of them yeah. wanted to have their memories erased they both did it as this act of self-sacrifice for somebody that they loved. Their relationship is so shaped by parallels. Like whenever there's a thematic parallel to something that Kane does and then Abby does it later or vice versa, I think we're always meant to hold on to those moments as being really key. So there's there has to be another way. Um, there are some really beautiful sort of visual Christ figure parallels between like Abby being shocklashed by somebody else on Kane's behalf to... Kane being hammered onto a cross by somebody else on Abby's behalf. You know, like the scars that they give to each other and the way that those scenes were sort of filmed, you know, Abby being shot glass with her arms outstretched, you know, in this very Christ-like pose when there's a lot of different other ways they could have staged that. So I think that the parallel of the only thing that could have made Abby take the chip was to save Raven. And the only thing that could have made Kane do it, you know, like Abby saying, you can torture me, you can do whatever you want, I'm not going to do it. Like they both explicitly said, I do not care about my own physical pain. And Jaha yeah. and Ali were smart enough to know 
okay, well, that's a waste of our time. Let's try this other thing that we know will be instantly efficient because Kane loves Abby and Abby loved Raven. They weren't going to let someone that they cared about die. So there's an element of, I think, self-sacrificial love to them taking the chip that we haven't seen in anybody else because everyone else who we've seen take it took it because of what was promised to them, like that they wanted what Allie was selling. And Kane and Abby yeah, didn't want it. and there's also lack of consent there. Yeah. There's also, we're told, I mean, we get that line at the beginning of this episode where Allie says, we're still experiencing a 3% rejection, rejection rate. rate. Yeah. And, you know, she talks about, like, this one is strong and so on and so forth, which is interesting because, like, we're clearly sort of being told, like, there is a subset of people who resist and that there's a difference. Like, those people are sort yeah. of qualitatively different and their minds are different. So I think, like, these are the two people that we've seen take the chip reluctantly for motives that we know that Allie can't understand. Like, if anyone from the inside is going to be able to work their way out of it, then it's going to be those two people. Yeah, and I think what I'm really interested to see, where I suspect things are going to begin to crumble in some interesting ways, is we know that Chipped Abby knows who Clark is, knows that Clark is her daughter, and that there wasn't any sort of visual reaction when people mentioned Clark's name. It wasn't like a Jaha moment where these, you know, somebody said Clark and she goes, Clark? Yeah, exactly. Oh, right, yeah. Clark. You know, yeah. like it wasn't something like that. Yeah. So right now, her information about Clark is that Clark is the thing that they are hunting for. Like Clark is the prey. Like they want this thing yeah. that Clark has. Clark is the thing that they want. And that she knows Kane and Abby's relationship with Kane well enough to understand that that would be sort of an instant trigger point. But I just, I think the juxtaposition of that so close together with that beautiful, heartbreaking moment of Abby saying goodbye to Clark and saying, may we meet again, to me means that I think, and again, like we talked with Hannah and Monty parallels, I think that we're really being set up for Clark and Abby's relationship to be really tied into the heart of what shuts this all down. I, I think that all of the parental kinds of moments, I mean, even up to maybe it was intentional, giving Clark sort of the callback to Kane's mom and having Monty and his mom, like all of this sort of maternal symbolic little moments spliced through the last several episodes that begun when Abby took the chip. Yeah. When she and Kane kiss in 309 and he says, maybe we meet again. And she says, we will. And they do. And it's terrible. So it's like they have this <laughs> lovely goodbye and then it gets turned on his head. And so I think that that second parallel with her and Clark can be deliberate. Yeah. A Clark and Abby showdown of some kind is imminent. But I am really interested in the idea of what their experience is like inside the City of Light. I will say of all the things in this episode that shocked me, I was floored and devastated that Kane took the chip. I was so yeah, convinced. I was really surprised. I was really I was surprised. surprised. That was one of the biggest shockers of the whole thing because mentally I had drafted him on my fantasy resistance adventure squad with <laughs> Pike and Indra and Murphy. Part of me is a little like, okay, well, like at least they're together. But I do feel like I'm really interested in us getting to see what it is like inside the City of Light from their perspective. And I do wonder if resistance is possible which we know that it is because of what we saw with Raven. And it is love that is what makes that happen. I like the idea of there being sort of an underground resistance even inside the City of Light. And one of the things that's making me think about that, you know, I was talking to, to some friends about this last night. There are a number of different ways that you could look at what's really going on in that scene between her and Kane that could support a number of different interpretations about 
how much Allie versus how much Abby were really watching. Yeah. It is clearly far more Allie than not, obviously. I mean, everything that she does is responding to Allie. So we don't really see an Abby at war with herself. But there are little moments where I think that it does sort of make you wonder, like Allie has to keep prodding her to push Kane harder and harder. Her instinct isn't to sort of like go hard immediately. Allie has to keep ramping up. Talking to him doesn't work. Okay, that's wasting time. Okay, now try harder. Now try harder. Okay, now let's mm-hmm. put him on the cross. You know, is the fact that Allie has to keep nudging because deep inside there is some part of Abby that is resisting a little bit, dragging her feet, I guess, a little. And also the kiss, which I've watched like a hundred times, um, <laughs> which is creepy and awful because it's the consent thing and she's so clearly not Abby. It's incredibly disturbing and unsettling and also hot and I hate myself for how hot I find it. I'm just like... <laughs> You're like sitting there like rewinding again. I'm a monster. I can't believe it. Yeah. No, it is because I was so righteously like up on my high horse about the consent issues when it was Amori and I'm just like, I'm trash. But um, <laughs> one of the things I do think is really interesting I think Kane knows the moment that the transition from when Allie tells Abby, try harder, and the hug becomes the neck nuzzling that then turns into the kiss that then turns into almost couch sex. The transition out of the hug, I think, is important because the hug is totally believable. She's completely plausible as Abby up to that moment. And then she steps over this line where you can tell intellectually he knows. He doesn't kiss her back. He's not an active participant in any part of that yeah, kiss. Yeah. He's, I he's, think that's why, like, that's the moment when it started reading to me is really uncomfortable because, like, he became yeah. sort of, like, stiffens yeah. and his eyes stay open when she starts to kiss him. He, like, looks so startled. Yeah. yeah. And then there's a kind of, like, moment where he sort of, like, can't help himself. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. He just kind of, like, melts into it a little bit, but never quite completely. And you can tell, like, you can see in that, like, when she, he sort of reacts in a surprise way when she starts to kiss him. You can tell, like, his brain is starting to work. Yeah, yeah, you can see the wheel starting to turn. And when she pushes him down, he doesn't resist, but he also doesn't engage. It gets into some really unsettling territory. It's very disturbing to watch. And part of what I wonder, and this was a theory that I was talking to people about today and, and saw on Twitter floated around a little bit, was... And potentially this is wishful thinking, but I also feel like it could be grounded in what we see later, depending on, you know, if Abby is still in there fighting inside the City of White and not sort of passively waiting for Clark to rescue her, which is obviously what I hope happens. If she's an active agent in the destruction of the City of Light and in her own survival, then is it possible that the completely unlike her kiss is in some way a message? Is there some part of the real Abby that knows that Kane is going to know that that isn't her? I find that comforting. I don't know if I feel like that's because that isn't what's in the pages from the script that were released. Yeah, that, that isn't what's in the stage like, directions. That's one of those things where it's like it's plausible as a headcanon, and it's nice as a headcanon. I don't know if I would buy it as like an actual intentional interpretation of the events. Where it sort of becomes an interesting question is it is also in a lot of ways potentially an actor choice. Like I would be really yeah, interested in in be. asking both Paige and Lindsay just sort of as actors. What does Paige feel about how much Allie is driving the ship versus Abby? And how much of the real Abby is still in there? Because it's a mistake. The kiss is a mistake. It is Allie. It's a miscalculation. It's a miscalculation. It's Allie not reading the room. I think it's based in an understanding of their relationship that assumes that Kane's love of and desire for Abby trumps the fact that he knows her so well that 
the real Abby would never be like <laughs> wanting to take Marcus Kane to the bone zone while she's worried that Clark's about to die. <laughs> Abby's primary defining characteristic as a person throughout so much of this show and such a key part of their relationship as like the co-parents of the kids now is about keeping those kids safe. The idea that she would just push him down on the couch and start going at him seconds after she was like, I'm afraid my kid's going to die. It's like, that's like sort of a classic alley blunder based in a lack of understanding of the really complicated nuances of human relationships and what well, love yeah, means. I mean, that's, that's relationship as data rather than understanding relationships as relationships. Yeah. You know, like she's taking the relationships that Abby has and boiling them down to algorithms. You know, like exactly. Abby loves Clark yeah. and therefore will want to know where she is. You know, right. Abby has feelings, Kane has feelings for Abby of desire. And therefore, when you plug in desire, this is what happens. It's like, it's relationships as data rather than relationships as lived or yeah. experienced. If you were to ask a computer, even a sophisticated computer, what do people who are in love do? It might say, well, they have sex. Right. It's that kind of oversimplified, unnuanced, manipulative understanding of the people and the relationship involved. Yeah, and the specific particularities of the relationship between Cain, the human being, and Abby, the human being, that are so shaped around the sort of family that they've built with these kids means that Cain is perfectly willing to be tortured rather than give up their location. But they predict that he puts the kid's safety above his own pain, but he puts Abby's survival above the kid's safety. And those calculations they made correctly. That's like a syllogism that you can program into a computer. You yeah, know what I mean? exactly. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's the tactics that I think that are interesting because it's the little subtle things that Allie doesn't understand. And I do think that it is important to note, just again, in terms of where it fits in sort of thematically, you know, that Murphy had sex with Amori and didn't realize she was shipped at the time. And Kane was on to Abby within like 60 seconds from when she kissed him. I think that as significant... Murphy did not know Amori as well as Kane knows right. Abby. Right, Kane and Abby have known each other for decades. Like, exactly. They've, they've been building towards this romantic relationship for only six months, but that they've known each other for potentially all their lives, the intimacy and how well they know each other in ways that has nothing to do with, you know, the data that Allie can right. extract, yeah. you know. Allie would understand that as being like, you know a lot of facts about right. Kane. Right, exactly. You can leverage Maybe like the difference is that she as a computer program wouldn't understand how intuitively or emotionally human beings come to understand each other when they've known each other for a long time. Yeah. You know, like yeah. really, really knowing someone isn't just like, I can recite a very, very long list of attributes and facts about you, but rather it's a kind of like sense. You know, like, I just know how you are going to react to something because we've been best friends for 15 years. Right. And I just have, have that intuitive understanding of each other. Exactly. Like, that's not something that you could abstract into data. You know, like, right. you couldn't just say, like, I know that because I know these facts. Like, that's not really how it works, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then attempting to quantify something that isn't quantifiable, you know, like attempting to sort of break it down into bytes of data means that you end up with these really incomplete pictures of people because the heart of it is missing, you know? And so Kane having kissed Abby before and being able to feel the difference between that one and this one is not the kind of thing that Allie has on her like list of Kane facts. 
I think that the show all season has been building up Kane as sort of the moral center in a lot of ways. So the prospect of chipped Kane, I think, is terrifying. You know, yeah. um, he is one of the strong ones. He is also somebody that the kids trust. That could be sort of another Trojan horse thing again, the way that Abby played him. You know, him trying to get information out of, like, say, Bellamy. They all are yeah. all hardwired to trust that Kane is on their side. You know, Kane's been, like, the dad the whole time. It gives sort of an additional really scary weapon against the kids to Jaha and Ali. But it does also, I think, in some ways that are exciting to me, you know, again, like with you and Belark, like, as both a shipper and a person who likes to see plots converge, exactly. I'm excited at the prospect of Kane and Abby's relationship and specifically their love for each other and the way that both of them love Clark and the kids being mm -hmm. sort of shifted to the center of the storyline in a really plot relevant way where it feels like in the last two finales they were really sidelined in season one they were kind of in their own story and they were crashing down towards earth but they weren't there yet so they were totally uninvolved in the kids conflict mm -hmm. you know the kids hadn't been able to reach them for like four episodes by that point you know and in season two they disappear for a little while and then they reappear in the 11th hour as like we found them walking back towards mount weather and captured them as hostages there's sort of an emotional prodding for Clark to take action more swiftly because it's her mom that's in danger, but that they both are as passive as passive can be because they're literally in chains, you know? Mm -hmm. um, what I don't want to see happen in this finale, and I don't feel like this is what it's shaping up to be, but what I wouldn't like to see is yet another... All the grown-ups are trapped and they're just kind of waiting around for Clark to rescue them. I think it's much more interesting and a little, you know, terrifying to see how everybody responds to Kane and Abby being active agents on the opposite side in the real world, but then also potentially fighting back against Allie inside the City of Light, where I do feel like moving Kane into that storyline in such a forcible way. It has to be plot significant. Like it has to mean something that they're both together now. Yeah, and my hope is so. that what that means is that they're terrifying evil king and queen on the outside, but that inside the city of light, that there is some degree of resistance happening. So, um, yeah. so we'll see. They're not in the next episode. I don't think they're not credited. We won't come back to them until the finale, which means I suspect that when we see them again, it's going to be pretty explosive, which is exciting. <laughs> when I was watching the episode last night, I just stop and just like get my shit together during that scene like <laughs> 10 times. Like she entered and I was like, okay, all right, I need a minute. Stop, breathe. <gasps> okay. This is what a disaster I'm. I was so keyed up after the cabbie scene that the commercial break right after that, I got a text from my neighbor that there had been a shooting like right outside my house. And they texted me because they were like, we wanted to make sure that you were okay. We heard somebody unloading the entire clip of a semi-automatic like a block away from me. And I was too embarrassed to be like, I didn't <laughs> notice. <laughs> Like, I didn't hear it. I, there was cop cars on my street. I had no idea until they were like, oh my, oh my God, Claire, are you okay? And I was like, what are you talking about? And they were like, the, 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 sh the shooting, shooting, the cops, the street closed down. And I was like, yes, I knew about that because I live in the world and I'm a real person. But literally, I was just like, oh my God, oh my God, is Cabby going to be okay? Oh my God, Kane. Everyone was fine. Like, no one got hurt. There was no casualties. But it was like, well, that's not healthy behavior. <laughs> about myself. Then. Yeah, I'm oblivious to everything when Kane is on my television. So Luna, who is clearly like at the heart of the next episode, according to an interview I read with that actress, she said it was for two episodes. 
So then the big question becomes, what happens that gets everybody off the oil rig back to Polis? And how does Luna fit into that? I'm curious what your speculations about next week are in terms of Luna taking the chip or not taking the chip or dying versus just staying where she is. Like, how do we think that Clark and everyone else ends up reentering the main storyline? That's a really good question. I have to say, for the very short period of time that we saw Luna, I love her. I love her so much. I mean, it was like, okay, like, so the religious imagery in this episode was freaking over the top but like her walking in with a light behind her yep. you know, it was like nimbus it was like oh yeah like, yep. music was doing that too like the savior has arrived and yep. it's luna and i loved clark pulls out the flame and she's like i'm here to deliver this to you you know like asking her will you be the new you're the chosen one chancellor? yeah yeah will you be the chancellor in this like way where she's clearly asking it like pro forma like of course the answer is yes and i love that luna's just like nope not gonna yeah. do it yeah like, she just says no like she's like Lincoln in this way like there's a lot of similarities like she's she's the character who is like I refuse to be complicit in your corrupt system like I'm just not doing it I do not buy into the premise the fundamental premise of what you are trying to sell me like I reject and I think that's so awesome you know because like everyone on some level every other character including Kane you know including everyone has bought into this commander thing even like Pike and Bellamy they hated it, but they, like, accorded it some kind of legitimacy. Again, it's one of those disruptor characters. It's always really, really great when you have a character who can kind of look at it and go, like, yeah. I'm not even playing your game, you know, and I'm going to force you to, like, recognize the game that you're playing. So I thought that was really great. I thought it was, like, fascinating that she said she left her conclave and swore never to kill again, you know, so that we know that, like, the reason that she's there and the reason that she says no to the flame is that she's kind of, like, rejecting this entire basis of grounder ethics and politics. Yeah. Which is this like sort of kill to get to the top. Blood must have blood. Everything is built around killing. That's who she is. That she rejects that, and that's why she's here. So like I thought that was that was really great and super important. And there was like a theory floating around, which we can talk about next week and see if we how it works out. Like that might mean that Luna won her conclave and refused yeah. to kill Lexa, which kind of changed the whole Lexa thing. You know, oh yeah, like, I'm you know, very like, interested in that theory. Yeah, me too. So we'll see how that works out. Because it could be something else. Maybe she she left before the Conclave, you know, before she fought. Like, who knows? So I don't know. It's clear that the next episode is going to be mostly spending time on the oil rig. We're probably going to learn a lot about the flu crew's culture, how yeah. it differs and how they function. And there's that track on the soundtrack called Luna's Sorrow. So I think we're going to learn her backstory. Yeah. I really hope she doesn't die. And I kind of... Unless she decides to leave the oil rig with them and go back to Polis, I don't yeah. see her dying. I actually think at this point, it's more likely that she is simply going to refuse to take the flame and explain why. And then that's going to force them to have to find a different way to get in. Maybe your theory about like night blood itself being the gene therapy. So like maybe they figure out a way to like use her blood to make it possible for Clark to take the flame or something Oh, like interesting. That. Oh, yeah, like um, if potentially Clark injects herself with Luna's blood. Or, yeah. or like they take a sample of her blood and they take it back to, to Raven Arcadia, and Monty. To Raven, yeah. and, they can, and they like figure out what to do with it from there. I think like the description for the next one is the one that has, there's a tragic setback. I think that has to mean that like Luna's not going to take the flame. Right. She can't if she won't. And that's right. going to be the humongous setback. And then, then 15, there's like, it says that Clark finds an unexpected source of hope or something like that. Yeah. So Luna can't or won't take the flame. And then they figure out a different way to get in. So yeah. I don't really know. I feel like at this point, I don't know enough about Luna's character. Or I don't think there's enough data to like really speculate with a lot of 
accuracy. I have a hunch that it's going to be that Luna just won't and not that yeah. she dies. But yeah. that could just be wishful thinking because I really, really like her and I want her to live. Me and I want too. Her to yeah. Use it for and I want her and Rowan to be part of this new world. Yes. And, you know, like bringing clans together in like a new coalition. So that could just be me being like, yay, Luna, Luna forever. And then yeah. actually she's dead. So <laughs> I feel the same way that you do. Because one of the things I was really interested in with a little bit that we've gotten before we met her of her backstory and a little bit more that we got last night, the thing that I find really intriguing about her is that I feel like in some ways, thematically for the sense that we're getting of what the New World Order is, she's now then the perfect commander. She yeah. rejected blood must have blood before anyone else did. Clark had to sort of push Lexa into doing it. And then it was sort of like official. But Luna, and particularly if the sort of theory is circulating around that when she says my conclave, that what she meant was that she won the conclave, like yeah. that she had the chance for ultimate power and walked away from it because yeah. she doesn't want to be a person who kills. I like the idea of an endgame where she is the new commander because she really does more than anyone else, even more than Aiden, who is the successor that Alexa chose, she embodies that new world order that Clark was sort of trying to push Alexa to get her to push the grounders to accept of turning away from violence. You know, I think that Luna caring about that so much that she would rather walk away completely and sort of self-exile rather than being any part of that system is really interesting. I wonder a lot about what is the grounders political and governmental structure that's going to be built in the aftermath of the inevitable mass death of Jaha. And it's something I find potentially sort of really narratively satisfying because then it would, again, it would give us a lot more Luna, would be the idea that she doesn't come back this time. They got to get into the AI themselves, you know, a different way. But that at some point in the future, either she returns to Polis, you know, she has a change of heart, or Clark comes back to see her, or Octavia comes back to see her, or that in some ways Luna being reconciled with mainstream grounder society is also part of her arc that would allow her to potentially be kind of the perfect commander for what the story seems to be telling us is the kind of world that you should have and should want is the kind of yeah. world that Luna would bring. I still think that by the end of the season, there aren't going to be commanders in the same way. Yeah, like, I think that, yeah, that I think political you're right. system is being dismantled. Part of the issue is just that's going to be gone in season four and they're going to have to build something else. So I'll be curious to see what Luna's reasons were for A, leaving the Conclave and B, refusing the flame. Yeah. What I would love to see, and like, who knows if this is going to happen, but I would, what I would really love to see is for part of Luna's principled rejection of it to be that she is rejecting the flame as the vehicle for political sovereignty. Yeah, because that, we're not going to have it in the next round. Like, it's going to exactly. get destroyed. So Nightblood's flame, flame keeper. All that kind of stuff is going away and a new method of how you choose leaders is going to emerge. I would love a part of Luna's thing to be that she recognizes that even with the flame, which is like the less evil AI, that what the flame represents in terms of the way that it functioned in grounder politics is that it sort of rescinded free will or consent politically among grounders. You yeah, know, that you yeah. have this, like, thing that, quote-unquote, chooses a commander who right. then has absolute power. Right. 
and that what Luna is rejecting is that entire system. So yeah. It's the system that is built on killing people. You know, whoever gets it is the person who kills the most. So that's part of it. But the other part of it is the very idea that, like, you put this thing in my head and that makes me the person that you can't say no to, that you are subject to. Who knows if that's actually going to happen. But I think it would be really fascinating if, like, in addition to the kind of logistical reasons that the flame and the commander city of light and all that stuff is just going to be gone because it's going to be destroyed because that's, like, the battle that's coming. If also part of what makes Luna so exemplary is that she's the one who recognized in the first place, way, way back when, that that system needed to be dismantled. She left the Conclave because she doesn't want to kill anymore. If the reason she rejects the flame is because she rejects what it represents on that level, then I think that could be really, really interesting. You know, yeah. and like, and then maybe she winds up, she stays alive and comes back in season four and can kind of help like create a new world on a new basis. That's what I hope for, honestly. Yeah, and I think that would be really cool because that sets up a compromise where she's not unwilling to be a leader, but she is unwilling to be a leader in this way, which is different from saying that Luna doesn't want to be a leader of the Grounders or to be instrumental in sort of shifting their culture. It's that she will participate in a corrupt political system. Exactly. And that she would rather self-select out of that and go live on an oil rig in a house made of shipping containers rather right. than have pomp and circumstance and everybody bowing to her in Polis because she sees that at the heart that that is a corrosive and destructive system that was sort of destined to fall, which makes her the perfect leader. But on this show, that could also mean that she has to die. That's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> she could die in the first 10 minutes. She's we don't know. Too yeah. good for this world. Bless that would you, really Luna. suck because she's like such a parallel to Lincoln. And I, we just started shipping Luna yes. and Octavia. Yeah, so. Luntavia, my ship is sailing. <laughs> <laughs> it's tank before it can sail. <laughs> This is exactly like when the minute I started low-key shipping Gina and Raven, and then Gina died 10 seconds later, right, and it was yeah, like, R.I.P. bartender um, mechanic, the ship that never <laughs> sailed. <laughs> Only in fanfic. I had such high hopes, yeah. <laughs> we should probably wrap this up. We've done lots and lots and lots of screaming. Thanks, everybody, for listening and for, for putting up with our aggressive shippy flails this week. <laughs> and uh, we'll be back next week to talk about episode 314, Red Sky at Morning. So thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.